Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, leaders, this is Ledge back with another episode. As you know, I am a co-founder and managing partner of Ad One Zero, and we work with B2B services companies growing out revenue and sales teams. Our guest today is Tree McClown. He's the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Sidekick, S-I-D-E-Q-I-K. There's no U in there, and it's not Sidequick. We just went through this. Tree, give an introduction of yourself and the company, just so everybody can get to know you a little bit. Cool. I'm Tree. I live in Atlanta, which is not hot at the moment, which we not also talked Atlanta. about. But Sidekick, we are influencer marketing platform. So we really help brands build authentic relationships with their customers via influencers. So brands utilize us from everything from figuring out who the best influencers are to actually driving revenue with those uh, influencers and creators. This is such an interesting topic to me being like someone who is tragically unhip and consumes virtually no media, you know, okay. that how, how does this work? You know, treat me like I'm like an influencer fifth grader because I kind of am. So Cool. So the basic gist nowadays is creators, influencers, they are really the uh, place where if you are Gen Z or millennial, that's where you go to actually know what's next, what you're going to buy. So brands are doing everything they possibly can, as you can imagine, to reach that sub 25, sub 30 um, demographic. And the best way right now is via influencers and creators. So our product just on a base level, it's a SaaS product. You can log in, you can use what you are, are use our tool to actually go in and search for, just like Google, the best creators and influencers that match what your brand needs at that particular moment. Launch marketing campaigns, measure the uh, awareness and, and kind of how the conversation has evolved over time, and also measure and generate revenue with these creators. So it's a pretty robust platform, but the whole idea is to really just frankly reach that young Gen Z millennial boy and girl that's just out there on cross Instagram, social media, TikTok, et cetera, that might not be walking into your store organically, but you know that you want to uh, get in front of them ASAP. Right, right. And so influencers would be like sort of a personal connection to an audience because exactly. are, people are following them. So I know like my kids, for example, follow, you know, gamers and everybody on YouTube. So that I imagine that's one sort of example there. God bless. I don't want them on TikTok, but if, if that <laughs> did happen, I'm sure they would follow people on there, you know, too, as well. And is it, is it similar to what would be like a 
product placement like way back in the day kind of thing or is like has it evolved that direction it's it's evolved a little bit i think initially it definitely started off as you're gonna pay somebody to promote your product there definitely didn't have to be any sort of real authentic relationship with that product and then since then since people have gotten more sophisticated the buyer has gotten a lot more sophisticated what they're really looking for is actually someone that is promoting a product that is highly aligned with like what they're going to buy every day, what they're going to use every day. And that is the hard part right now about influencer marketing is actually figuring out that alignment and making sure it's authentic because unlike people my age, like folks my age, like we are used to TV ads and everything. Kids who are 18, 19, 20 years old, they want authenticity and they want that relationship to be real. So, so like, the influencer landscape now has really transitioned from just being pay to play, just get the biggest people to all about authenticity, finding a community and really tapping into that a community via these influencers. Like people who actually want and need the thing yeah. actually it's part of their life. And now they're just sort exactly. of turning the camera on themselves exactly. to make that a part of it. So exactly. I, yeah, and, I get that. And a, a lot of our early customers actually started off in the gaming uh, and esports space, which is super interesting. It went from gaming and esports went from no one really paying any attention to it outside of gaming and esports to now, if you're a marketer, like that's where you really want to be because they're all young, hyper engaged, and it's literally young, young kids all the way up to adults, and everybody's there. So it's like you got to go where the people are, and that world is probably the most sophisticated around how to best use influencers and creators. Right, right. And so you guys built a platform we did. for this. You have to aggregate all kinds of data that's public across tons of different networks, I guess, and make sense of it. So like, what's the what's the product journey for that, like for the, mm-hmm. for the SaaS tool? I mean, a lot of people, I think, are trying to solve these problems. How did you even think about doing that? So we actually kind of, how the journey started, we founded the company, uh, back in 2012-ish. And a part of that journey was we originally started off in helping brands work with other brands to do cross promotions and campaigns. And what we really found through that journey is that brands, when it comes to working with another big brand, what, what they do not want is a technology in between there. And, but instead, they actually wanted to build an authentic relationship with that brand and use maybe more agencies or use their in- internal creatives. But through that process of just learning, we started to see a trend around the influencer and creator market. And a lot of our clients at that time were in gaming and esports. So that's when we leaned in to that particular vertical and just hyper-focused in how do we make the influencer category amazing for the brands who we work with. And then that's where it was, it was been some stumbles and some stops and everything, but that's really where everything started to uh, evolve of just super serving the um, gamers and and the brands which work in that space. And then from then, now we work with all sorts of brands, like major national brands, which you can see on our website, like your Coca-Colas of the world, Under Armors and all those sorts of people. Did that like blow your mind, you know, when the first like huge brand walked in and they wanted what you were doing? Yeah. It did. Like I honestly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. when you first start something, you you have this vision of, okay, yeah, we're going to get these big brands. But the path to get there, once you get going, you realize, oh, this is not going to be as easy as I thought it was. 
So when we got the first big brand, the brand which really turned everything in this amazing direction for us is landing Coca-Cola, being here in Atlanta. That was a big win for us. And that was a pivotal moment in the trajectory of our company is closing Coca-Cola and establishing a relationship there. So, and then from there, it became like, okay, if we can get Coca-Cola, we can get anybody. So then the doors were open and we were like, wow, who do we want? Let's go after them. Like, let's start a relationship. And, and it was turned into more of a referral thing after that. Like people heard about us, they knew about us, they wanted to work with us. We have a pretty interesting team with a varied background. So it also made it pretty fast once the ball started to roll. Yeah, right on. I mean, everybody thinks that they want that that big account. And I think there's like this myth that we founders tell ourselves that, you know, we're always that one big account away from making the turn. And eventually that might actually happen, but you spend a whole long time in that trough waiting for that big one. You know, it just doesn't fall that way. Like, so what were, what were some of the missteps? Like, you know, tell me that, tell me the good stories that, that are not like Coca-Cola signed, you know, cause that's what yeah. we're like here. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not going to name the actual client course, cause it's a little of bit course embarrassing, not. <laughs> uh, mostly for us. But uh, I remember we were, this was when we were really first started to get going and we were having a meeting in their office and we were, as you can imagine, just amazingly excited because like this is another really great brand and since we were effectively building the product on the fly you know like like we would have a meeting go back okay we have to do x y and z it totally does what we said oh yeah it was like (laughs) oh it totally does that we can totally do that guys we're screwed i just promised something we can't do (laughs) oh yeah and we were going beyond that. We were using PDFs to actually sell because the product was non-existent based upon what their actual needs were. So we literally would mock up PDFs mm-hmm. and Some we did Slideware. Yeah. Tell, exactly. And we never told them that we actually have it, in, but they assumed. But uh, probably, I don't know, maybe a, a month or so in and uh, the deal was almost completely done. And I remember we were in process of executing and then uh, the conversation turned pretty swiftly to, did you guys actually have a product (laughs) when you first came in? (laughs) And we were like, well, you know, since you guys are about to sign, we're going to tell you. To find the word have. Yeah. yeah, And yeah. And like that whole journey, that was like probably the most stressful two months of the life of our company because how we were viewing and kind of how we were feeling was, wow, we do not close this deal. We are done. Like this is, this is where all of the focus is at getting this deal across the finish line. And when you have the whole journey of you, you get some, some customers, but you realize they're not the right customers. And then you get in front of the ideal customer. You, then you quickly realize, Oh, what you have is not necessarily everything that they need. So then you have to on the fly, build it super fast but then the focus is so intent on how do we super serve this one person yeah. that if anything happens, any hiccups, it was it was a pretty stressful couple months. That was probably the most stressful as it relates to dealing with clients that I've felt in the journey of Sidekick. It's just building something that you knew wasn't quite ready yet, but and then also having to remain super confident that you can actually do it from a sales perspective, product perspective, how we can service them. Cause it was a big multinational account. 
and we are a SaaS business. So it wasn't like we're, we were professional services. Uh, and it was pure SaaS. So we had to build something for that one client, but it had to be something that could be sold to other people. So it also had to be in line with what a broader group of people actually need. So that was an interesting point <laughs> in our journey. Do you, looking back, do you think that was the right, like it had to <clears throat> be that way? Was it, was it the right path? I mean, it worked out, right? Mm -hmm. You know, but there's a lot of companies I know, I know stories I've, I've tried to pull off where I'm just like, yeah, we didn't make the deadline or, you know, whatever. So like you look back and think that was, was lucky or was that like strategically you nailed it? So you know, he's smiling, can, everybody. You got to watch the video too. So I yeah. can, uh, <laughs> the truth is in that meeting, in those sets of meetings, we nailed it. It was in the amount of prep that we had. We, I did research on everybody who was going to be in the meeting. Mm -hmm. I understood what they liked. I talked to the people that uh, I, I happen to know who were friends with those folks, understand their personalities. So we over planned and not necessarily, we didn't plan the words in which we would say, but we knew who cared about what. And within the, the course of the presentation, we knew like when we were going to turn. So it was, when it comes to prep, it was like you are prepping for battle and there is two outcomes and one outcome is not positive and the other one is success. There's no in between. So when you don't have any other option, it kind of leaves you at a place where success is literally the only, like the only path is forward. And that's kind of how we approached it. We have to win. We have to win this account. We have to do it for our investors, have to do it for our, our team. There is no second best in this situation because second best would mean that we would have lost the account to someone else. Wow. Yeah. Well, right on. You got it done. You got it done. So you wear the chief revenue officer hat mm -hmm. and I, I am familiar with that, but I think a lot of founders maybe are not so sure where business development revenue deviates from, you know, like the CEO hat ends up doing all the things. Yeah. You can't do it. And so I'm kind of familiar with this because we, you know, we'll come in and off and take on the the revenue function, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like outsource wise as a, as a consulting arm, but you're there doing it, you know? So like, how do you guys divide that between CEO? I don't know if you have a chief operating officer or like mm -hmm. CRO with you, you know? So like, how, how are you handling that? Because I think it's yeah. an important distinction. So what I do is multifaceted. So with, within our organization, you have sales, you have customer success, account management, uh, you have marketing, you have finance, and then you have engineering and product. I run and lead everything that is non-engineering and product. So as it relates to um, customer success, um, sales, building up that inbound and outbound sales engine, marketing, working with sales to, to help build brand awareness, help actually build what our marketing campaigns and, and inbound looks like. And then finance, that's all, obviously, that's pretty self-explanatory. That's all numbers all day long. But I have a very, I would say, unique background. I started off in uh, risk management insurance, which is heavy over-indexed in the financial realm, especially what I was doing in that space. So, and then I transitioned into more of a <clears throat> media and then ultimately tech. 
So my background is not just your traditional, I'm going to go up through the, the ranks via sales, but I don't know anything about anything outside of sales is out of necessity right out of school. So I have a great understanding of foundation and finance. Then I uh, worked in marketing, had a longer stint and I found out like what is like my true passion, you know, and that's, I'm a deal junkie. I love, love, love deals of all sizes, sales deals, like deals to raise money. I just love deals. So I really figured out like what's my true passion and like my path. But my breakdown within the organization is basically everything outside of engineering and product. So if it's not that, that's what I have a purview over. And it makes sense given my co-founder, his background is uh, engineering and product. Right. So he over-indexes in that. And, and obviously we overlap and, and we both uh, lean on each other for various things in the other uh, camp. But in terms of the, the line of who's doing what, it's pretty uh, clear. So that's why it's good to find a good uh, partner when you're building a business that has complementary skill sets and a lot of times not the same skill set because then you're going to have a big gap in the organization, which you're going to have to fill by somebody else that might not have the same level of desire, knowledge, know-how, ingenuity, and all the stuff which you look for when you're building something. Yeah, I love that background and the risk and finance, you know, heading into sales because I I sort of have a similar thing. I did a lot of work around like financial planning and, and CFP and all this oh, nice. stuff. And I'm so happy that I did that because number and risk knowledge, I think, is tremendous in deal making. I think it gives you this yes. little sort of idea of what can I what can I offer? How can I stretch this? Where does this matter? Playing a little of that, you know, 4D chess in the middle of the deal making. I totally uh, resonate with that story. I came out of the product side, so I was oh, nice. I was I was a developer. Oh wow! And ended up founding companies, and then realized that you know if you were founding companies and hiring people, it turned out you had lots of bills, and somebody needed to sell something. So <laughs> I started doing that. Ended up being good at that, and went that direction. But yeah, I mean, there's there's so many moving parts, and product led companies I think are are different. Like, how does that? Do, do you guys buy into the product? you know, product growth type of methodology, like the product does all the work or, I mean, cause you're talking about, well, we do lots of marketing. We do, you have an actual sales organization. Yeah. Also. So, how, so how does that all always, play together? Yeah. So I would say that we are a blend. Mm -hmm. Obviously what we are doing is heavy, heavy duty product because when you're ingesting so much data and making sense of it for your clients, adding context and making it actionable, like you just can't, like you have to care deeply about the quality of the product, what the product does and the impact it's having. But at the same token, you got to keep the lights on. So I would say that we are a blend. We, we think through product led from the standpoint of making sure that our product is driven by what the actual customer needs are today, but then most importantly, where they're going in the future and making sure that there's a lot of alignment there. But also like we... We considered what we were doing as like a challenge, a little bit of a chess game, you know, like we're in a very competitive landscape. So we had to, out of necessity, get really efficient and thoughtful around building up a revenue engine. And that is, is the experience that we give an actual customer from that first phone call to post-close and you're working with our, our uh, CS team. 
So we have, we've gotten really proficient, like very high close rates, much higher than your typical industry average. But like we had to literally be perfect. Like we uh, kind of have the saying on the revenue side is you literally have to be perfect every single day. That is the, that is the expectation, which could lead to a little bit of stress, but also it's very freeing because that expectation is not just me saying it. It's literally other people in the organization. They're like, were you perfect? Like, was that the best that you can uh, do? Was that everything that, that you, you had? Did you leave it all out there? And it's amazing to see that culture build, but it's also a team vibe as well. So it's like, it's like how Brady just won um, the uh, title and his team is super excited. He built a great, there's a great team around him and everybody kind of rallies around that idea of like, Hey, we want to be a champion. We want to be perfect. And there's, there's other people on the team saying the exact same thing over and over and over again. We're the exact same way. And that gives a lot of uh, push and pull from a product perspective. Like we're always pushing them and then they're like, well, sales, you need to do X, Y, and Z. So they push us. So it's a good give and take around who's leading at that moment. But we take both of our roles very seriously in terms of what we're doing on the product side, what we're doing on the revenue side, and uh, we love to win. So that supersedes if it's a product-led company, if it's a sales-led company, it's just what's gonna, what do we have to do in order to win? Like that has been the focus from day one. How do you keep that culture running hot, but not running toxic? Cause you know, yeah. like thou must be perfect is, is often, you know, I think in a, particularly our Western society, the drive for perfection, you know, is sort of like mm -hmm. killing everybody. So you can, you can do that the right way and the wrong way. Like how have you yeah. guys struck that cultural balance? Yeah. So what, what I have found, if you kind of have in a business con context, if you have to strive for perfection, but you don't have the flexibility to realize people are going to make mistakes. And then when they actually do, you don't get mad at them. You don't freak out about it. You just like, so what happened? Okay. That makes sense. I probably would have done the exact same thing. And then you're kind of past it. But I found that just starting to have those conversations, establishing an authentic relationship from everybody in the organization. We also have a policy of don't be an asshole, which is pretty core. So in terms of like how we hire, who, what we look for, the people, because we are kind of threading that thin line of, hey, we do want to win. We want to be, be perfect. You have to be very careful to get the right people on the bus because the wrong people on the bus could take that idea and pervert it. And then all of a sudden, it's a completely different culture, completely different animal. So a part, our hiring process weeds out people that would not align with the don't be an asshole, be a good, a good person, super serve our actual customers. And our desire to win is frankly leaning into what do our customers need? What do they want? And how do we provide the best service for them? That's the only time you'll see people really upset in our organization is is a time where we will drop the ball or something happens and a customer is upset. But usually now it's not coming from me. It's, it's just kind of how we're orchestrated as a team and we don't blame the individual. It's like something must have went wrong in our process. Let's look at the process, revamp the process and have a conversation about it. Because if you just kind of jump on people about every little thing, then, I'll, then yeah. soon they're just going to stop performing and stop caring. So it's like depersonalized team goal of 
of perfection. Yeah, like yeah, and yeah. and there is the people who we hire, they want to be successful and they want to super serve the, the clients and they take it personally when a client is succeeding, they take it personally when a client is not. Um, right. and those traits is what we look for because your reputation goes before you and it stays after you. So that's why it's so important to us to make sure that we are doing the right thing at all times. Yeah, right on, right on. Where do you think that that came from in in your history? Like is that is that you and your partner driving that, you know, from the the uh, garage days so to speak? Or? Are you are you talking about like how it like how that's ingrained in me or how it's ingrained in, in, in the well, organization? I find the leader the leader values, you know, came from the beginning when it was like, you know, a couple of people around a coffee table, you know, just thinking about this. And then it grows to, you know, larger teams and it has to be powerful and coming down, you know, from the top, or at least like you created that, like, and I just wonder where it came from in your own personal history. Yeah. So for like me, I've had positive and negative experiences in organizations prior and looking at what were the positive experiences. And that was when there was in the organizations, there was a competitive nature. There was a desire to like, just really super serve the actual customers. And there was an expectation of perfection, but to go along with that, they were also very understanding when it comes to knowing that mistakes are going to be made, knowing that things are going to happen. But and then on the flip side, I've had the opposite experience. And this is where you kind of learn what not to uh, like actually do, where it was everything about the actual culture was toxic. It just wasn't a good fit. And you know that you just feel it on day one. You're like, man, I made a wrong decision here, <laughs> you know, and you know that. And it just comes from the, the, the culture that they have set. Is not based upon anything that aligns with like what's in your heart. What what do you want to do as a, a leader? Uh, so I just wanted to do something different. Jeremy wanted to do something completely different. So we just made an intentional decision to actually actively create a different culture, to actively recruit a different type of person that we knew would succeed within this kind of vision. And it's always interesting when we hire people. It's always interesting their first week, first month. It's like you're, they're being deprogrammed. They're like, "Wow, you're trusting me to make that decision?" Like, yeah, <laughs> I would have, I would have hired you otherwise. Like, you don't have to, like, come to me and like, like, ask my permission about everything. Like, you are super smart. You know what you're doing. Just go. And it's, it's interesting that first week, month, it's literally a deprogramming of everything they've learned previously because of all their experiences. But then after that, they are very bought into uh, what we uh, do, kind of how we approach it. And that permeates down to uh, how our customers also view us. Yeah, I've completely experienced that. I'm just like, you don't need to be afraid. Like, I'm not going to bite your head off, you know, for, yeah. and, and we, I don't want to say we encourage mistakes, but we encourage boldness and authenticity. And yeah. uh, the path to, you know, success is probably going to be paved with some epic failures <laughs> with oh, yeah. good intentions. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And to do anything great, you're probably going to fail eight times. You're going to fail nine times. It's that last time that all of a sudden it blossoms and something is amazing. But mm -hmm. uh, you cannot have fear of failure. And that 
I've, I have really discovered throughout my life and career, the fear of failure is not because the individual is necessarily just ingrained in them that they're afraid. It's because somebody who is their, like, uh, in their family, a leader, a teacher, somebody instilled in them or told them that it's not good to fail. But failure is one step closer to succeeding. So it's like if you get a speeding ticket, typically you're not going to get a speeding ticket for another year or two after that, you know, like from a... So I would rather have someone fail right be, right prior to, to starting or at the beginning of starting with us and fail big, like massively. And then all of a sudden you have this like person who's like, wow, that's not that bad. I'm going to take another big, bold like bet. And then all of a sudden it blossoms and we benefit from that boldness. I bet you've, again, the risk tolerance thing. I, I think you probably have the innate ability or experience, the to create systems where people can make mistakes, but they're like one order of magnitude mistakes, not like, yeah, like it's, you know, well, you won't lose a million dollars by doing this. You've created no, a structure no. where someone can make a 10x mistake, not, you know, what, a, you know, million dollar mistake. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> so and I think that's, that's really smart, like leadership wise, that you, you have guardrails in place and controls, and it probably comes from some of that you know, financial background. I know my maturity, I always think of maturity as entrepreneur, you know, has to do with, you know, sort of two vectors of the number of zeros you can ask for without throwing up and yeah. the number of zeros like attached to the mistakes that you make. <laughs> so, That's a good idea. That's yeah. really good. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. So what's, um, what's next for you guys? I mean, the rapidly changing landscape. I mean, you have to think about like, She's the next, like, I don't know, clubhouse, right? Like some massive yeah. new thing is, is going to pop out at all times and something you invested a bunch of money into, you know, may not be popular anymore, like, like overnight. Yeah. Uh, I spend a very large amount of time digging into what's coming next and understanding like, frankly, future trends and how someone who's 18 years old what do they actually care about, you know? And the farther and you get from that, the harder it yeah, is. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. And it's not typical at my age and everything to have to care this deeply, but it's also really interesting too. So I like it. It like keeps me young and deep in the culture. But yeah, so like what's next for, for us? We're just on this, just growing. We have some pretty interesting opportunities that are directly in our space. Some are close to our space, which kind of lead more in the sports arena. We've, we found that what we are doing has a lot of applications and has a lot of upside. So we're pretty excited about it. And yeah, we're just going to keep growing, keep building and keep having fun at the end of the day and can't wait to start to travel again pretty extensively. Oh my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Can't wait to start taking your snaps on an airplane again. Right. So people want to, you know, get in touch with you, get in touch with the company and, and maybe do, do some business. What kind of kind of folks do you want to be in touch with who can you help who do you want to be helped by that kind of stuff yeah so our client base is consumer brands just kind of as like a broad category of folks and typically brands that are are catering towards the gen z or millennial group that's really who we focus on we have probably 50 to 60 percent of our clients are e-commerce direct to consumer and the other half are traditional cpg brands but yeah so if you kind of fall within those buckets would love to have a conversation with you and you can email me reach out to a sidekick but my email is just tree at sidekick s-i-d-e-q-i-k.com 
Awesome, man. Well, thanks for uh, coming and hanging out with us. Love to talk. Absolutely. Check you later. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.